Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. It's Black History Month, and I feel at least two ways about that that black history should be included properly in our history books and stories. But since it's not, we absolutely do need to make extra efforts to rectify the inexcusable neglect and tilt of what did make it into our texts. We have Anna Mae Duane with us here today for Spirit in Action to help fill in some of the glaring absences. Her new book is Educated for Freedom, the incredible story of two fugitive schoolboys who grew up to change a nation. And it's a great way to open historical doors. We'll talk about these amazing two students from the New York African Free School. And make no doubt about it, both James McCune Smith and Henry Highland Garnett were amazing people with profound effects on our history. And we'll talk about the parallels and effects and issues still with us today around race. Anna Mae Duane joins us by phone from Stores, Connecticut. Anna Mae, thank you so very much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Hi, Mark. Glad to be here. And you're over in Connecticut. I'm here in Wisconsin. Has Connecticut always been your home? How long have you lived there? I've been here now about 15 years. I was born in New York City. I returned to New York for college and grad school. So I guess I'm a New York girl at heart. Is Connecticut... How do I want to say? Is it at all provincial compared to being in New York? Yes, in some ways. One of the, I mean, Connecticut in many ways, I'll probably get in trouble for saying this, is, is at least where I live is a suburb of New York City. Lots of people here commute into the city, but it's way more segregated than New York City was in lots of ways. In New York, one of the things that struck me is, at least when I was there in uh, college and grad school, Everyone wanted to be in the city. The city is sort of where you couldn't even afford to live because it was so desirable. And in Connecticut, it's kind of reversed that we have traditionally neglected our cities and everyone kind of lives off in the suburbs. But I think the state is really trying to, to work on that and revitalize our cities, which, you know, is the way our economy is going to flourish. The cities are, are sort of the engines of every state. And I think we're finally coming around to that, to realization of that. I live in a relatively small town. I mean, it's 70,000. But before I lived here, I lived in Milwaukee for eight years, which I understand is one of the most segregated cities of the country. I think that's true, or maybe it's of the north. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. So what has your experience in New York City versus living in Connecticut, what has been your experience of racism and its growth change influence on the day-to-day life? I would come from this from the perspective of teaching. I've taught in both places. And at the University of Connecticut, I teach American literature and African-American literature and also other things, uh, disability studies. That's kind of a separate subject that I'm interested in. And I've seen in the University of Connecticut has and still is a large, a predominantly white school. And the conversations I've had wrestling with questions of 
slavery and freedom and our past and incorporating African-American literature into our national literature, those conversations have really changed. In New York City, I had a more diverse classroom and people were more sort of savvy about these conversations. Until pretty recently in Connecticut, I mean, they students were eager to learn, but I kept hearing from students of color and white students, why didn't anyone tell me this? Why wasn't, you know, I (laughs) used to not, I used to teach, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, everyone's read Frederick Douglass, the narrative of Frederick Douglass 20 times. So I would like skip that and do a, you know, a less known narrative. And I came to learn like they had no idea. No one had told them about Frederick Douglass. So one of the interesting things that's happening now in University of, um, sorry, in the state of Connecticut, which again I, I find really empowering and exciting, is that students, uh, high school students and early college students, primarily of color, but it's a broad coalition, have gone to the state government and petitioned that we need African American history in the high schools. We need African American literature in the high schools. This is not something separate from our history. And then, of course, once you incorporate these conversations racism becomes, you know, not something that we're all going to pretend doesn't exist or, you know, for half the class is living with it every day and the other half of the class, the white half is is telling themselves, oh, this isn't a problem anymore. And this is a conversation I keep having and they're getting richer, but they're always challenging and engaging. But I've seen students of all sort of, at least in my classrooms, uh, both black and white students and Hispanic students are uh, really engaged in sort of wrestling with this history in a way I hadn't seen 10 years ago. I'm actually curious if the advent of the administration of Donald Trump has maybe increased interest. People could take it rather complacently beforehand, uh, saying, well, look, we've got a black president and, uh, you know, we can be post racism. Obviously, we're not nearly there. And that is so apparent these past three years. Has it increased, upticked the past three years? Absolutely. I mean, it's so interesting when I talk to students, there was this discussion, some scholar wrote a piece while Barack Obama was president, saying exactly what you were just mentioning over post-racial. He was making an argument, we don't really need African-American literature as a category anymore, as a separate category, because, you know, racism is kind of over. Right? It's not that, that's what the main subject of it is, which I don't agree with. But we're done with that now. And when I bring that up to my students, now they are just dumbfounded. They cannot imagine that anyone ever thought for a second we were in a post-racial country because they have sort of come of political age in the era of Donald Trump. And I never hear that in my class anymore, that racism is no longer an issue. Unfortunately, everyone is, you know, keenly aware. And again, in Connecticut, we haven't had at the, well, we had a uh, right wing. That's not true. We had uh, a few incidents of people uh, stirring up, you know, racial distrust and, you know, basically coming with a racist message to campus. And there was a big, sorry, protest. And, you know, my students of color that came to me felt very unsafe. Even in this you know, basically liberal, somewhat sheltered space in the United States, I have my students of color feel quite afraid in ways that I hadn't heard. Maybe they just, uh, you know, they were just as afraid, they just weren't talking about it. But it's so latent now, everywhere we go, that I I think there's no one that can really allow themselves the illusion that we're not, you know, struggling with with a racist paradigm in our public discourse. 
Well, folks, the reason we have Anna Mae Duane here is because of her recently released book, Educated for Freedom, the incredible story of two fugitive schoolboys who grew up to change a nation. And the subject of the book the, the, is really the lives of James McCune Smith and Henry Highland Garnett. And we'll talk a lot about them, two black men who grew up in the 1800s and in many ways the dialogue, the, the tensions of their life, the activism that they lived throughout. It foretells some of the tensions we've lived through in my lifetime, and I'm 65, so I've lived through the latter part of the civil rights movement and and many tensions, and including the unthinkable that we actually had a black president. I would never have believed that, that we could have gotten that far past racism from back when I was in high school. Just It was such a step forward, and of course, maybe a step or two forward and a step backwards is the norm of life. Too. But we're going to talk about those two men and the book Educate for Freedom. But first, I wanted to ask you, Anna Mae, how you got into this subject matter. I mean, at one point, you were the director of American Studies, you're associate professor of English. How does this, the life of these two men, become centerpiece for, I'm sure, many years of your life? Yes, absolutely. I think I'd have two answers to that. One, again, comes from the classroom when I would teach African-American literature or American literature to my students, and I would teach you the very important, you know, the, the texts we all know, slave narratives, Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, Sojourner Truth, and those are incredibly important stories, but my students would come to me and often say, well, but that can't be the only story of black lives in the 19th century. It tells a very constricted story in which there's subjugation and slavery, and it ends with this sort of happy ending in which they cross over to the North and everything, you know, it falls into place. And, And slavery and freedom is divided along this very clear line. And so I was looking for a story, or I was really attuned for you know, proving my students right. I said, you know, you're absolutely correct. That doesn't even begin to to begin to tell the whole story of how freedom worked and how people in the black community struggled and forged this definition. We often think of, of, of freedom as something that was sort of given by, you know, Abraham Lincoln or the 13th Amendment. And I was really interested in figuring out how the people who were denied freedom imagined it, dreamed about it, fought for it, and defined it. And so in some ways, like, this is the, so how did I come to these two uh, remarkable men as a, a, a place to, to figure out that story? I always think that it was sort of one of those moments in the archive where you're just reading over these old papers of people we all have forgotten. And I was in the New York Historical Society, and I was interested in the history of childhood. And so I was just looking for old school records to see what I could come up with. And I came across this valedictorian speech. I didn't even know who to attach it to or how to place it in context. It was at the New York African Free School, a school for students of color, and it was a valedictorian speech. So I said, okay, this is a very accomplished student. I thought, this is incredible. It's in the 1820s. And he gives this speech, and the beginning of it is exactly what you'd expect. He's thanking his parents and his teachers, and he's basically saying, look at what I can accomplish. You know, prejudice is mistaken because look at how accomplished I am and uh, what I've been able to do with, with the chance to excel. And then the second half of the speech is him saying, yeah, but it doesn't matter. 
racism is so pernicious. It doesn't matter if I have the mind of a genius, I won't be able to succeed in this country. And I just was completely taken aback. Of, of, I wanted to know what was happening here, how, what was the context of a school in which this was your best student and this was the speech he was giving to everyone who was cheering him on, what kind of contradictions uh, he was living with and what it was like to be a student in the school. And I wanted to know what happened to these students. What happened to, I mean, you can tell from this performance and, and maybe we'll talk about, you know, there's just the records are incredibly rich with student performances and schoolwork that these were brilliant kids. And I just wanted to know what happened to them. And once I started looking, it turned out they went on to incredible things. I chose two alumni of the school, but there are, you know, there are lots of other books to be written. Uh, the first Shakespearean actor, the first American of any race to perform Shakespeare in London was Ira Aldridge. And uh, he also came from the school and he's not even in the book because there wasn't <laughs> room for it. So I just really wanted to follow this cohort of students from this remarkable school who were wrestling with this very contradictory message about what their future would look like. I think I have a pretty good idea of something about the mechanics of how you got there, but I'm not quite sure. I'm not sure if you even consider yourself an activist, but I have the sense that having discovered this rich treasure trove, uh, this historical glimpse of our country, and having grown up to see it happening in our country, that there's a part of you that's very drawn to activism. So which came first, the literature or the activism? Were you predisposed already? I was absolutely predisposed already. And Certainly anti-racist activism, and also for me, I've always really been interested in thinking about the ways in which we shut children and youth down, how they are excluded from, uh, you know, in my context, from the historical record, we act as if they don't matter. They're excluded from legal testimony. They're excluded from the vote. I mean, and this is something that, you know, is very much on, you know, on the news today of young people sort of resisting this. And I, I was really interested in this school and these children because they were kids. They were 11, 12-year-olds. They are, you know, shunted by their color, by their poverty, and by their age of, you know, both in their own time and I think by historians and, you know, literature teachers like myself, it's very easy to say they don't matter. And I think it's a particular form of activism to make sure that the voices of those who traditionally we don't think had a voice or who we don't think we should go and look for them because we won't find them, that sort of positioning these child activists, that this school is not a footnote, that it's a place where revolutions were born, where descriptions of freedom or imaginations of freedom were forged by teenagers, and they carried that through their lives. So for me, I think it, it spoke to a lot of the questions that I wanted to bring to the fore of why we don't think children matter, particularly children of color, particularly children of color in schools. And that dovetails with one of the themes that you bring out in the book. And again, folks, the name of the book is Educated for Freedom. It's by Anna Mae Duane. That topic is how the view of blacks, people of African descent, and likely brought in through slavery to the U.S., that blacks could never mature, that in fact they were always destined to be childlike, in their thoughts, that their intellect and their emotions could not go, grow beyond that. And the New York African Free School, I think, was attempting to prove 
maybe otherwise. But I put that in your words, because actually you're the one who's studied so many documents from that time. How would you put it into words, what the New York African Free School was doing, their worldview? I mean, I think in many ways it was like so many other institutions at this moment. It's deeply contradictory. It was founded by uh, founding fathers, John J. Alexander Hamilton, 1787, and comes into being in the 1790s. And it's born out of this enlightenment philosophy that was really a double-edged sword in many ways. And we can trace it to the Declaration of Independence and other founding documents, this idea that power should not come through bloodline. Right? This was the argument against the monarchy and the, and the king, but that giving every citizen, that everyone could be equal, given access to education, to the capacity to become rational, to become reasonable, to become independent thinking adults. And so the school is in some ways putting this to the test, well, is this possible for all children, including the children of enslaved people. And the cutting edge of this Enlightenment philosophy was that lots of people were considered disqualified from this rational, ideal citizenship. And women were disqualified. They could never be rational enough. And certainly African-Americans were, you know, slavery apologists would certainly make this case. Well, they just can't be educated into equality and rationality. And so the school was a way of proving them wrong. And one of the things I found really remarkable and where I found so many great records is that every year they would get their best students and basically put on a performance where they would showcase their work, their speeches, their artwork. There's a fantastic drawing of Benjamin Franklin that one of my students does, uh, James McKean Smith draws. And it's sort of repeating this over and over again. Like, look, yes, we are capable of reason and ration. We can grow into freedom. And at these performances, you would have the whole, certainly the whole community come out, but you'd also have people from the national press. What these kids could do was a question that got to the heart of whether slavery was a moral act, right? whether, in fact, you were treating people as children who had every capacity to be equal adults. So it was, this, you know, it, was, it was really, in some ways, a school that was doing good in the community, but was sort of at the knife's edge of this political conversation about what freedom could look like and who could be qualified for it. And this and much more details in the book, Educated for Freedom, the incredible story of two fugitive schoolboys who grew up to change a nation by Anna Mae Duane, who is our guest here today for Spirit in Action. She is Associate Professor of English in Connecticut, and she was, at various points in the past, Director of American Studies at University of Connecticut. Uh, she's written a dual biography of two black men, early 1800s to toward the end of the 1800s, who in many ways through their struggles chart struggles we're still going through in terms of how we deal with race and racism in the United States. She's here today for Spirit in Action, and you know our website is northernspiritradio.org. Links to our guests, you'll find links to Anna Mae Duane and her book and all of our guests since 2005. You'll find 
find the stations across the nation where our programs broadcast, and you'll find a place to post comments. So please comment on this program after you listen and rate it. And also remember there's a donate button, which is how this full-time work is supported. Please support us, but also remember to support your local community radio station. Alternative media, alternative voices are so very essential for increasing wisdom and change in this country. So please support them and then pick up the book, Educated for Freedom. Now, Anna Mae, we were just talking about youth and related issues, like the way that those being seen as too young or immature can't vote and aren't allowed to have power. We have some really interesting counterexamples where youth are respected, listened to, given a prominent stage by many, among them Greta Thunberg. She's pretty influential in terms of climate science and the urgency to deal with climate change. She is clearly changing a lot of minds with her climate activism. And also, I can think of the students from the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas School, the site of the Parkland mass shooting deaths. They have had a powerful voice. So I think that young voices are certainly not uniformly ignored and distrusted. But one of the things that I note about our country now, and I think it was probably very different in the early 1800s when James McCune Smith and Henry Highland Garnett were growing up, were coming through the New York African Free School, we have a greater and greater length to which we keep our youth immature, shall we say. It was very different when I was living in Africa, in Togo, doing my Peace Corps service. I was next to nine-year-olds who were quite essentially could care for a two-year-old and you'd be very dependable and and a kid at the age of 13 was doing a full man's work, that kind of thing. So in many ways, I see the U.S. as keeping our youth from full maturity longer early 1800s, I think it was somewhat different. I think that people grew up quicker, even though they still couldn't be adults until they were 18 or 21, I guess. Yeah, it was 21. I mean, it's really interesting. I mean, and again, I think it is part of this idea that reason and rationality and a certain kind of maturity was what made you ready to be a citizen. Early in the late 18th century, early uh, 1800s, being able to vote was largely dependent on whether or not you owned property. That was sort of the, you know, the marker of someone who was worthy of voting. And by 1820, 1830, that changes to age. Right? That becomes you have to be 21 and various other attributes. But the whole, right, I think it's part of our identity as Americans is this, you know, when we fought the revolution, we saw ourselves as sort of a rebellious teenager against Mother England. So we have this sort of fascination with youth and rebellion, but I think that's also made us very wary of it and very sort of attached to this idea that you're not qualified to speak politically until you're of a certain age. And it's so interesting, you, you know, you talk about Greta Thunberg and the Stoneman Douglas kids. I, I mean, I think they're, I admire them incredibly, and I also see a conversation around them that is, you know, very familiar, that, that somehow, why are we listening to a bunch of teenagers, right? They have, you know, that's one of the, the counter-arguments trying to shut them down, as if the fact that they're young alone disqualifies them or makes what they're saying uh, less valid. Yeah, there is this tension that goes on between those viewpoints, although some of our greatest historical heroes for the U.S. were terribly young and incredibly from our point of view. And right now, you know, you have to be 35 to be president, but you can save the country when you're 18, right? (laughs) 
Absolutely. And yeah, that's one of the reasons why, you know, I think it's just crazy that when we think of American history, we, we don't foreground youth, because I think right, that is where a lot of the action happened. <laughs> the revolutionary soldiers were 16, 17, 18 years old. So yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's an illusion that maybe we adults allow ourselves to imagine that, oh, you know, nothing really important happens until later on. But I don't think that has ever been the case, and it's certainly not the case now, or it shouldn't be. Throughout Educated for Freedom, I think that a key tension that is discussed and seen from various viewpoints is the question of integration versus colonization. Do blacks have to go back to Africa because the U.S. will never accept them as equal? And this is a tension actually between Smith and and Garnett that uh, Garnett tended to be on the side of colonization, not uniformly, but mostly. And Smith was mostly, not always, but mostly optimistic that we can work this out, we can integrate this This country can come to a greater state of maturity. And the weird thing to me was the fact that the New York African Free School, where they both grew up and showed such stunning scholarship and abilities, that the school was generally advocating colonization. And that just, that blew my mind. Right. No, it's sort of this incredible moment of you know, just realizing the contradictory messages they were getting. They were being encouraged to, you know, work as hard as you can, be as brilliant as any white child, right? You're absolutely learning the same material. You're being applauded for being accomplished, but you're also being told, but you can't stay here with that, right? You're not, you're not going to be able to do anything with that. And I mean, in some ways I've, I've been trying to, you know, it's easy to dismiss colonization at first as sort of this sort of harebrained scheme. It's, you know, it doesn't seem to make any sense. How would you possibly send everyone back? But it's very much the default, it's what, you know, in the 1820s and 30s, it's what most abolitionists think is probably going to work. They just don't see a way that prejudice will ever be surmounted. And that's kind of where the principal, who is this Englishman named Charles Andrews, who by all accounts you know, believed fiercely in his students, but he just sees his students going out into the world and not being able to, you know, get a job as a blacksmith, as anything because of prejudice. And he comes around to this idea that, okay, yeah, we should become a school that basically prepares people to go to Liberia, uh, where they can actually flourish. And it's this moment of community activism that I find really striking that I think shapes both men, even though they do, as you say, take different approaches to this question later on. But this school, you know, and everyone is sending their kids to this school, they're, you know, impoverished, they're minority population in a city that is rife with prejudice. Slavery itself has just been made illegal in New York City in 1827, so they were in a very precarious position. But they refuse to send their children to the school anymore. They refuse to, to uh, you know, buy into the future that Charles Andrews is selling, that they are not going to accept this vision of freedom, that this is the only way education can work for their children. They demand black teachers to teach their students how to flourish in the United States, and they win. Andrews leaves, and they do, in fact, install black teachers. So there's this battle for the sort of soul of the school, of sort of the future of these children. And James McCune Smith and Henry Helen Garnett watched their own neighborhood do this, watched, uh, you know, it was 
mothers and fathers who got together and said, no, we're going to talk back to some of the most powerful people in New York City and insist on a different vision of our children's future. And I think that's one of those moments that is largely unsung, but I think helps to shape both of their lives and sort of the political actions they take. So colonization from the right from their schoolboy days is this very divisive issue. And I think for James McCune Smith and for Garnett, there's this question of loyalty to their parents and community who came out so strongly against it. Right, their own they saw their own school basically brought to its knees over this question. So it was always deeply emotional. It was always a question of you know, do we belong here? And their friendship splintered as Henry Helen Garnett began to later on sort of come around to the idea that, you know what, I don't know if there is a future for us here after all. I I think maybe that immigration might be the way to go. And James McCune Smith and other people like Frederick Douglass saw this as a betrayal. Yeah, there's so much deep emotion and power and incredible personality. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're talking about these two. It's, this is essentially, Educated for Freedom is essentially a dual biography of James McCune Smith and Henry Highland Garnett. But it's so set in the times. It's amazing to watch. And I had to go look up some of the timetable of history. I'm Quaker, so I'm aware of Quakers in the mid-1700s finally coming out pretty strongly against slavery. And by 1780, Pennsylvania had declared what they they called a, a Gradual Abolition of Slavery Act. So that means that children would be free, children of current slaves. So it was only guaranteeing freedom to the future. But in seventeen in seventeen eighty three, Massachusetts, their Supreme Judicial Court rules slavery unconstitutional. Immediately, boom, all slaves are freed at that point. So I was surprised that the Puritans passed up the Quakers along the way because <laughs> well, different views on the world. But between 1804 and 1834, basically all the northern states then get on board with anti-slavery at various steps. In 1822 is when Liberia, as an American colony, was formed. So I'm observing these changes going on in the culture and so amazed how slowly, how, how much time it took for the north to really get with the anti-slavery, even anti-slavery program, even though they didn't really get with the equality program. And again, two very different things, seeing Africans as equal versus seeing it as morally wrong to enslave anyone. Two very different questions. Absolutely, they are not the same thing. I mean, it's it's uncomfortable for us to think about the ways in which some of these heroes of the abolitionist movement are, yes, being anti-slavery and anti-racism are not the same thing at all in this era. And again, this is as my two students, as James McHugh Smith and Henry Highland Garnett, they're graduating school pretty much the same year slavery is being abolished in New York City. So they're really sort of coming into freedom at the same time, because New York was also one of the states in which you had gradual manumission, which, you know, to go back to the same question, right? It's, it's sort of based on this idea that freedom was something you had to mature into. So you were, yes, you were born into freedom if you were born in 1799, but you couldn't claim it until you were 25, 26 years old, right? That children themselves had to be basically shaped 
to become free citizens. You couldn't. So in Massachusetts, uh, that sort of, you know, boom, everyone's free was really not the standard. Connecticut, New Jersey, lots of these states did the gradual manumission, which which did also sort of kick the can down the road, because you can imagine you pass this law and it doesn't come into full action until 27 years later. So, yeah, you, you sort of have this really split personality in terms of what abolition is doing until you have James McCune Smith, Henry Helen Garnett, Frederick Douglass, and others, black people, <laughs> joining this conversation and saying, wait, 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 no, this is not enough, right? It's not enough just to not have slavery. That is not freedom. That's not equality, and that's not what we're going to settle for. I assume that part of the reason people did this kind of, we'll do it over the next seven years in gradual manumission, I assume that that's the way they could get buy-in from the voting population. That's the way that they figured people would not push back too much. Uh, if you say slavery's done now, then you get a Civil War-type experience. It's like, no way, you're up yours, we're, we're coming after you. Right. And so I see a, a tension in between the two in terms of, you know, it's like, well, damn the torpedoes, let's go. And uh, I think James McCune Smith's kind of like, we have to curate, we have to educate, we have to prove the scientific invalidity of phrenology and craniology. James McCune Smith, I think, must have been radically impressed by his experience when he went to pursue his education as a medical doctor when he went to Scotland and he was well received. He, I think he did not experience the sea of racism that is, was so ubiquitous in the United States. He must have had such a different experience to make him a lifelong optimist about this. Right. I mean, he, in some ways, uh, and again, like going back to their school days gives a sense of sort of their political perspective later on, he is always a great student. He is all over the records, giving all the speeches. You just know he's sort of like the teacher's pet. And because he's such a spectacular student, the community, both black and white, you know, uh, prominent Quakers and other uh, sort of uh, the black church in the area and other community members sent him to Scotland. He goes to University of Glasgow, where he is the first African-American to earn an MD. There were no American school would award an MD to a black person before. So he's, you know, cutting. And so in some way, there is a way you can see his optimism working out for him, right? He believes if you work hard, if you just keep providing evidence of your own excellence, people will come around. And in some ways, right, it's working for him. And he famously writes in a journal and a letter back to his mother when he lands in Liverpool, says, this is the first time I've ever felt free. Uh, even though he was not enslaved in New York City, he feels sort of the air of freedom for the first time. He feels safe. He feels uh, treated as an equal. But he sees this as a responsibility, right? that the work, it's not an individual path to success, right? The fact that he's a doctor and he could live in Glasgow or Paris, uh, where he also goes, I can't help but think that would be really tempting <laughs> to stay there, but he doesn't. And just to give a sense of, of what he must know he's facing when he comes back, he tries to book passage back to the United States where his studies are done, and the American captain refuses to give him passage because he's a black man, will not carry him uh, as a passenger on his ship. And all his colleagues in, 
at the medical school sort of are outraged and they have a party for him and they, you know, celebrate him and they try to sort of, again, make the case that he's absolutely this accomplished doctor and this prejudice doesn't make sense. But James McHugh Smith turns his eyes back to New York City. He just books another ship and says, this is where my work is. He's an optimist, but he, he knows it's going to be a long trek. He says one of my favorite quotes of his is that he sees himself as like a bit of coral that you don't think it's doing anything under the water, but in a hundred years you've got this incredible superstructure. And in some ways, you know, he represents, you know, a strain in, in black activism to this day of just, you know, slow and steady, work within the system and just keep your eye on the prize, right? That don't relinquish your claim to this country. Don't relinquish anything but full rights, but know it's going to be a long slog to get there. It's kind of interesting. You note that James McCune Smith, his speeches are all over the records of the New York African Free School. Yeah. Henry Highland Garnett, on the other hand, he's the one who becomes the most noted orator. He becomes a pastor, and his speeches, his oratory, is so persuasive. I think a lot of people on the, say, James McCune Smith, Frederick Douglass side of the debate, I think they were a little afraid that Henry Highland Garnett would sway too many minds. It's like, no, we can't publish his speech. We can't let this out because he's such a wonderful orator. I didn't really get a clear idea from the book, Educated for Freedom, how Garnett ended up pursuing this avocation as a pastor. I wasn't quite sure what led him in that direction. I mean, Smith going in the direction of a medical doctor and eventually becoming relatively rich for the times, and certainly for a black person, this other path in the direction of the ministry in the Shiloh Church where he worked for many years. Is there some sense of why he went that way? I mean, I think partially because that was a vocation that was open to him as a black man, right? that he had mentors in the ministry. Uh, and not that that was, you know, an easy path to be ordained wasn't always, was still a struggle for many people in his generation. But he had, you know, um, these were the leaders of the community were ministers. This was a way to be politically efficacious. This was a way to get up on a podium and give people inspiration and to rouse them to action. And he's such a firebrand in so many ways, and I hoped to bring it out in the book a little bit. He was also a very nurturing person. He really tended to the people in his congregation. He served in Troy, New York, and was well, you know, stop on the Underground Railroad. He personally uh, helped several fugitives escape. So it was a place for him to sort of tend to his community. In some ways, he and James McHugh Smith, even though right, it's very different in terms of the pay they're, they're receiving and maybe the job security they have, they're both serving their communities in ways that are both sort of political and pastoral. The New York African Free School had a, both a brilliant time on the stage, and then it eventually got opposed, actually, as well. I interviewed Sally Rogers, who lives in Connecticut, and she told me the story. She shared a song about Prudence Crandall, which I think I'd like to share now, who was a white woman who ended up wanting to include black children in her school. The townspeople opposed it. They tried to create another school. The, the townspeople united and burned down, tore, tore the place apart. I mean, it was kind of a dark moment in 
the history of that area of Connecticut. And uh, they essentially drove her out, and she goes to Kansas and Illinois and so on. But they did an about-face before terribly long, uh, that is to say some decades, and they recognize her as a history. I think she's uh, she's got a, a place in, I don't know if she's the state educator or whatever, uh, historically. It's a truly wonderful turnabout, but so crushing. So Connecticut, where you're actually located, Anime, did not have an unparalleled history in the correct direction, shall we say. Yeah, no, absolutely not. And this is, I mean, Prudence Crandall's school is part of the very bumpy ride that uh, Henry Highland Garnett has to his education, whereas James McCune Smith sort of lucks out in many ways and gets to go to University of Glasgow. He is obviously not up uh, for uh, Prudence Crandall's school because it was only for girls, but his future wife attends that school, and she's thrown out. Right? They're driven out uh, by vandalism. There was a school proposed in New Haven that he had hoped that would be integrated in New Haven, and the townspeople you know, just completely rise up uh, and refuse it. And it's interesting in terms of the language of colonization. They worry that somehow, you know, Connecticut will be overrun, that it won't be uh, a freestanding state. All this sort of worry about it becoming de-Americanized, which doesn't really make sense (laughs) to us in so many ways, but that's sort of the language. And then uh, after Prudence Crandall's School is destroyed in New Hampshire, uh, and this is just an incredible student. Canaan, New Hampshire, they, another sort of secondary school, a uh, college of sorts. People decide to give it a try. They announce they'll allow African-American students to attend, and Henry Helen Garnett's future wife, undaunted, right? She's been thrown out of Prudence Crandall. She goes there. He goes there with other friends who had attended the New York African Free School. And just to give a sense of how threatening many white Americans just found the idea of educated black people. This town is just such a, if they ever make a movie, this scene should you know, be a centerpiece. They get, believe it or not, 90 oxen, and they yoke them up, and they pull the school itself off its foundation and into the swamp. What a great it's, scene, yeah. <laughs> it's hard to imagine. The first you know, account I read of it, I'm like, this can't be right. But it's, you know, there's multiple sources, including, you know, Garnett himself and his friends saying that, you know, describing this horrible action that they, that they just absolutely couldn't even bear the building to stand. So, yeah, in, in some ways, there's this real tension. And you can imagine someone who had been raised in the school where he was told education was everything. And then once you're 16, 17 years old, you know, every door is being closed to you. Prudence Crandall's school is certainly one of these dark, sort of ongoing issue of where are we going to allow African-Americans to get the education that we're insisting they need in order to become citizens. Yeah, it's quite amazing all that's packed into Educated for Freedom, the incredible history of two fugitive schoolboys who grew up to change a nation by Anna Mae Duane. I want to conclude just a couple more historical notes, some things that I got from the book that I had never seen before. And I felt ignorant, Anna Mae, because I was convicted having seen this little glimpse. In a lot of ways, you go kind of quickly through the 1840s and the 1850s, and then the Civil War arrives, and you're not trying to do a biography of the Civil War by any means. But one of the things that convicted me for my own ignorance was about Abraham Lincoln's 
take on colonization. Why don't you spell that out? Because I, I think so few people, he's seen as a hero of emancipation and of equality for blacks and so on. But his viewpoint was not real positive about the assimilation of blacks into society. Right. And I mean, I, you, if you're convicted, so am I, because I really wasn't aware of this conversation until I started working on this book myself. It's not something we sort of talk about in the history book because it complicates our idea of Lincoln as this great emancipator, which, you know, he was. It's, he's both and. In the days leading up to signing the uh, Emancipation Proclamation, right, this great moment in which, you know, most historians see as, you know, the end of slavery for all intents and purposes or the death knell of slavery. Um, he gets people, you know, local black community leaders in Washington, D.C., and he, he sits them down and says, okay, well, freedom is probably going to come, but you, you guys will never be happy here. This country will never be a home for you. So that's what can we do? And he, you know, he, he was open to either South America or Africa. He didn't, he wasn't that concerned. But even he couldn't imagine a country, right? Even as he's imagining ending slavery, he can't imagine what comes next. Uh, he can't imagine a country in which black and white people live side by side in equality. Now, they tell him no. And this is another moment in which it could have gone another way. I mean, it seems really unrealistic. But you've got to remember, this is the same century where we had the Trail of Tears and the Indian Removal Act. This is the same country that had enslaved 4 million people. They could, you know, it very well could have happened. This is a time where we were doing massive repopulation projects with very little, you know, attention to human rights. And this sort of pushback from people who were in a very disempowered position, uh, I, you know, sort of shapes Lincoln's decision and shapes the country that comes after, right? This insistence that, no, we're not, going to accept what you think freedom is going to mean for us. We're going to stay right here. And sadly, I have to say that in some ways, I think that Abraham Lincoln's take and you know, maybe that of Henry Highland Garnett, that maybe their viewpoint was more accurate than my own optimistic viewpoint. That is to say, the continuing racism. And we're talking now, you know, closing in on 150 years later, that racism is still such a horrible blight on what we do in this nation. And actually, I thought I, one historical note for me, in the 1960s, we have Martin Luther King and the other, all the one, other wonderful folks associated with the nonviolent action towards equality, towards civil rights. And, you know, eventually by 1965, there's actually some legislative action that is meaningful about that. And still the pace is going at such a, it's such a snail's pace that there's the, the start of rejection of the nonviolent approach saying maybe what we need is a good revolution. We need, yes. you know, Black Panthers and everything else. I think we saw that happening over the life of both Smith and Garnett as well. Right. The, I mean, the black nationalist movement that, you know, many people locate in the 1960s and 70s, we can trace right back to Garnett, this idea of like we need our own nation. <laughs> it's not going to work for us here. Yeah, I know. I, I do think that in many ways their friendship and their different positions on this uh, is one of the you know places we can trace this ongoing conversation that I don't think has been resolved. I don't know if we can say if either one of them was absolutely correct, right, because we're still not done. Actually, there's a moment, uh, so at the end of the book, 
Garnett is asked to speak before the House of Representatives after the 13th Amendment has been you know, put up for ratification. And he doesn't talk about slavery being over. He talks about all the work to be done. And there's just one quote that I, I find so powerful. He says, the good work which God has assigned for the ages to come will be finished when our natural, national literature shall be so purified as to reflect a faithful and just light upon the character and social habits of our race. And the brush and pencil and chisel and lyre of art shall refuse to lend their aid to scoff at the afflictions of the poor or to caricature or ridicule a long-suffering people. When caste and prejudice in Christian churches shall be utterly destroyed and shall be regarded as unworthy of Christians. And he goes on. Right? And, and some of it, that, I think he surprised the House of Representatives by not saying, oh, thank you, you know, so much. Now our work is done. He sees this as a social movement. There, He's not just talking about race. He's talking about the poor. And the sad thing is that we're not there yet. No. It's not clearly on the horizon either. I mean, it's... We're still mucking through that swamp of racism and prejudice and privilege and all of that kind of thing. is still going full bore right now, as, as I perceive it. Yes. Sadly. And I mean, I take great comfort, perhaps, or inspiration in these two men who, as bad as it is now, they were in a country that didn't see them as human beings and how they just kept pushing forward. They just had this vision of a someday that they weren't willing to relinquish. And I, I think in some ways that's one of the lessons I took from their lives, and I hope that people will get from this book, that the work isn't done, but it doesn't mean we get to stop working. Well, since it is Black History Month, I'm so thankful to have read this book. I really feel completely enriched by having read Educated for Freedom, the incredible story of two fugitive schoolboys who grew up to change a nation by Anna Mae Duane. Anna Mae is Associate Professor of English in Stores, Connecticut. She's also served at various points along the way as Director of American Studies, University of Connecticut. The dual biography, Educated for Freedom, is but one of the things she's written, and I think we're so fortunate that she did. She's opened my mind to so many pieces of the puzzle of race as existing today in the United States, but which took back in the 18, took place back in the 1800s. Anna May, thank you for this clearly, it's very clearly a work of love of yours, a labor of love, and for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much, Mark. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you for having me. Remember, folks, to rate this program and leave us a comment on northernspiritradio.org. A big thank you to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's program. I mentioned earlier in the interview a song by Sally Rogers called Prudence Crandall, the state heroine of Connecticut for her thwarted attempts to teach black students in-state back in 1832. I don't need to tell you the whole story because Sally Roger does it so well in this song. Thanks for joining us today, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. Here's Prudence Crandall by Sally Rogers. Here I sit in my 83rd year, I write this letter with ease. The sacrifice of time you have made has brought me solace and peace. I never only redress for the past But my loss of home and livelihood Could not dim my faith in God I knew that justice would reign I knew that peace would prevail I knew that
When Sarah Harris came to my door so many years ago, I never dreamed a town could scheme to hurt a person so. Teaching misses of color would become a state offense. I could not obey such an unjust law. It defied all common sense. I knew that justice would reign. I knew that peace would prevail. I knew that all humankind must learn to love one another as one. Well, you remember the townspeople's acts of slander and abuse. My well was poisoned. My house set on fire. No church nor shop could we use. My students suffered sorely, but they held their heads up high. Though every step brought taunts and jeers, whenever we passed by, they knew that justice would reign. They knew that. Though bail was offered to me, the papers all across the land reported my trial by jury. When the black law passed, the bells did toll in a church where we could not go. This news of a just recompense, I greet with tears of joy. I knew that. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. And our lives will feel the echo of our